0: the China's Song Dynasty. These are cultures that embrace trade and innovation, at least for a time. But these societies eventually all turn inward, closing themselves off to new ideas and holding themselves back by their own aversion to change. All these open societies did this, except for one, ours. The Industrial Revolution and the Great Enrichment, which began in Western Europe and has since spread throughout the world, has been a genuine exception for more than two centuries. but We have no guarantee that this openness will last forever. Increasingly, many in the West are against the things that have made the world so prosperous and dynamic, among them trade, immigration, and innovation. So today I'm speaking with Johan Norberg, who makes the argument that a dynamic open world is still worth fighting for. Johan is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute, where he focuses on globalization, entrepreneurship and individual liberty. He's the author of several books, the most recent of which is Open, the Story of Human Progress. Johan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. You've devoted an entire book to sort of the political economy of openness. Why would you do such a thing? Because I've been quite obsessed, I must say, with the idea of
1: progress, the amazing fact that um, we lead the kind of lives that we're doing now with these lifespans, and most of us not in extreme poverty, because it's a brand new phenomena. 200 years ago, the global life expectancy was 30 years, uh, almost 90% lived in extreme poverty, and now we live to be more than 70, and fewer than 10% live in extreme poverty. Why was that? That progress has got to be explained, because if we take it for granted, there's a risk that we'll lose it. And uh, I think my explanation for that progress is openness in various dimensions, Uh, open societies, open markets, uh, openness for
0: surprises. What do you mean when you say openness to surprises?
1: Well, I find it so interesting. When you look at most things that make our lives um, longer, better, more comfortable, the technologies, the goods, the services that we all take for granted now, they usually started out as uh, something that most people thought were was impossible. <laughs> uh, or if they were possible, at least they were stupid. Uh, so it always started with a tiny minority, a few innovators, entrepreneurs who thought that you could have something like a a personal computer even though nobody understood why would it want a computer back home or um, or even such a thing as an umbrella you know the um, the first person who who carried an umbrella in the city of london uh, in the early 1750s he was meant with met with public ridicule because people thought it looked silly and feminine protecting yourself against the rain and the angriest obviously were the coach drivers who feared the umbrella would take their jobs because they you you needed the coach when it was raining so they hurled abuse at him so all these things were originally met with um, ridicule or um, the the idea that they were stupid or they would ruin society for one reason or another So it took a lot of persistence, but most importantly, it took an open society so that even the minorities, even the eccentrics, even the innovators in a garage, they were allowed to tinker with their new idea. There were decentralized um, financing sources. So the few individuals who believed in it, they could fund it and they could go on to prove the worth of this new invention, or the new business model, the new technology, the new strange goods and and services. And in the end, we we all loved it. But had we had a committee making all the decisions, I think we would have thought that the umbrella, the personal computer, vaccines, um, even things like the internet would have been stopped because you can't understand the benefit it will make to the world just by looking at it from,
0: from a committee table. I think that being open to innovation, to trade, to immigrants, really means being open to change and disruption. It means being confident that change will lead to a better situation for you, your family, and your country, if not today, then down the line. I worry, and I think you also worry, that we're not as open to change as we used to be because we don't think it's going to make us better off in the long run anymore.
1: Yes, quite right. Uh, Historians often talk about uh, something called Cardwell's law after a technology historian, and it was economic historian Joel Moker who who coined the phrase. uh, And Cardwell's law uh, is about societies throughout history. Uh, they, They had progress because they were relatively open, but... That innovation, that change, then faced resistance. From the groups that thought that they would stand to lose from it. Uh, some of it mistaken some of them mistakenly, but also there are incumbents in business, technology, or perhaps religious or political elites who think that change will threaten their power. And Codwell's law says that, uh, well, eventually uh, those periods of uh, rapid growth of scientific knowledge and technological innovation, they peter out because those incumbents win out in the end and uh, change and innovation is, is undermined. And uh, that's my fear as societies grow older and wealthier. And I mean, those are great things, but it often means that we become fearful. We think more about what we stand to lose than what we could possibly gain. And then we have a more um, a mindset of uh, not being as open-minded to change anymore.
0: We talk about the Industrial Revolution coming out of Western Europe. Why didn't the explosion in progress happen somewhere else, like China? China was a highly organized, relatively advanced society. So why isn't the story of openness a story about the rise of China 1,000 years ago? Yeah, this should have been a Chinese
1: story because they got there first in in many ways. Had a a Martian uh, come to planet Earth 1,000 years ago. And so where do you think we'll see a renaissance, the enlightenment and an industrial revolution? He would for sure not have picked uh, Western Europe. He would probably have said China under the Song Dynasty, because that was a culture where they, even at that stage, they navigated with a nautical compass. They read books printed with a printing press and fought with gunpowder. And those are the three inventions that call Marx. Um, the communist uh, thinker, writing in the 1860s, credited with having ushered in Western capitalism, so they really got there first, and that was because Song China was relatively open. They were had a system of rule of law, fairly strong property rights in. Land, and they were open to innovations and ideas from other places. Many historians say that they were close to getting to an industrial revolution a long time before we got there. Um, but that was stopped. Uh, they invasions, mongol invasions, uh, was a stumbling uh, block there, but uh, even the Mongols realized that they had to revive those open traditions to to make the conquered China, uh, great. But uh, eventually, with the Ming dynasty, they just ended it all because they were fearful of that openness. They blocked all the... Ocean traffic banned trade with other nations and burned the boats that were were still there and um, erected uh, barriers and, well, the Great Wall of China against the rest of the world. And that started a 500-year history of stagnation in China, where foreigners even thought that they had been stagnant for for thousands of years and nothing really came from from China anymore. And uh, there's been lots of debate between historians on why they suddenly turned inward. Uh, But the, the most important thing is they could because it was such a centralized empire. So whenever the emperor decided that enough is enough, we don't want more openness, he could impose that as a policy throughout the empire. And the result was, Not to make make China great, but it was the end of the story of
0: of Chinese progress. Is the U.S. about to make a similar mistake? There are a lot of arguments about America could be a self-sustaining nation without relying on trade or immigration. Certainly be easy for America to turn inward than it would be for a smaller country like your Sweden. So to what extent does your pro-openness argument work for the United States today? yes it would be more difficult for
1: sweden to isolate itself with 10 million inhabitants and trying to rely on all the ideas and technologies that we have uh, back home but america wouldn't be able to do it either it's been possible to start a trade war yes and to um to reduce some of the trade with china even though that came at a cost not just in trade generally and, and to the economy but a loss of manufacturing jobs because so many people were uh, more people working uh, for example uh, companies that use steel than um, than produce steel in in the u.s so even though you might have protected some 40,000 manufacturing jobs, you probably lost some 250,000 manufacturing jobs because of this trade war. And that was small compared to the kind of isolation that uh, might happen if you were to shut yourself off completely to the rest of the world. And I think you'd see that more rapidly now than you did during the Ming dynasty in China, because now all the goods, every technology that we're using is dependent on global supply chains and you'd see a an economic disaster quite rapidly if you were to um to go protectionist big time and that would and this is a point that most people don't um comprehend that would hurt people who have less education and have lower income, much more than those who have it homemade. Uh, we have this kind of strange narrative about how free trade is an elitist plot against uh, workers, but actually when you look at the goods and services that people consume, people on low incomes and uh, of, more often manufacturing jobs, they consume more goods that are traded internationally, relatively speaking. For example, more clothes, uh, food, home electronics, whereas people on high incomes, they consume more local services, um, restaurants, um, healthcare, uh, legal services, and things like that. So we can see that if the US would stop all international trade, the uh, 10%, uh, the top 10, uh, percent they would probably not lose more than around 10% of their purchasing power whereas the 10% who have the lowest incomes they would lose some 60% of their purchasing power so it would be incredibly costly to the us to go it alone but most uh, of the horror would uh, the uh, people with low incomes face
0: the book is really an exploration of sort of the core tension of human nature our 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 trader side which you know we love openness and we we're innovative and we love new things and then what you call our tribalist side that we become closed and conformist and you know we begin to see the world in us versus them terms and sort of zero-sum terms why do you think sort of the tribalist part uh of our human nature seems to be ascendant at the moment. If you agree it's ascendant. It seems to me like it's ascendant. Yes, that's one of the reasons why I wrote the book because
1: I think it's uh, ascendant and it's dangerous because that might threaten our progress. Well, I think, it's always there. It's a part of our, our double nature. We are traders, but we are tribalists. And uh, as I point out in, in the book, if we were to condense mankind's 300,000 year history into 24 hours, into just one 24 hour day, then the 200 years when almost everything happened when it comes to our well being, our health, our wealth, when we reduced poverty from 90 to 9%, and so on, almost all of that happened in the last 60 seconds. But the problem is that that's not where our instincts and our attitudes and our belief systems come from. They come from the previous 86,400 seconds. So they are always there, making us suspicious about the world, making us suspicious about change, because historically we lived close to a risk to our survival. So we always had to be cautious about outsiders, about innovation, because it could threaten us all. And if someone during that long history was considerably well better off, an outsider or, or even someone in our tribe, it was probably because he stole it from us. So it made sense to be suspicious because very few people had lived with economic growth to such an extent that uh, most groups could be better off simultaneously. Um, it's a brand new phenomenon in world history that we can, that the world is not a zero-sum game. But we tend to retreat to those instincts, thinking that it's all a zero-sum game and that outsider could be the sort of the 1% of wealthy capitalists or the immigrants or another country that benefits from trade. If they are better off, we think that they took it from us somehow. And we tend to retreat to that extent, instinct specifically when we feel threatened. And I think this is an era when we are a bit afraid. Of the world, we've had the financial crisis, the Great Recession. We we live in the year of 9/11 and large-scale terrorist attacks, and now the pandemic. Um, Many things to be afraid of, and a media situation and a social media situation when we share everything that's dangerous instantly to everybody else. When we get afraid like that, it triggers some sort of societal fight or flight instinct. When we we want protection. We want to, the strong man or the big government to protect us against all these horrible things. And we tend to look for scapegoats as well. And that's one of the reasons why I think that this closed mindedness and this fear of change is in the ascendant. We, we are afraid. <laughs> There's more geopolitical tension now uh, than at least we saw after the end of the Cold War. And uh, that tends to, we tend to make s- strange decisions when we're afraid and when we panic, then we trust our instincts and our gut feeling rather than economics and uh, historical lessons. And that's why we have to be reminded of them.
0: How often when you make this argument do people respond with that zero-sum argument that they'll say, this, this, this wonderful story of uh, openness and progress is really a story of, of theft. It, it, is, it is really the, the, the old story that through um, you know, slavery and colonialism and exploitation of workers, that's where the wealth has come from the wealth was taken from them uh western societies and then that wealth has been sort of hoarded by a, a sliver of that society so what you call a a story of openness i don't know maybe maybe they would prefer i don't know if they would prefer the book to be called closed but they might be uh they might think the book should be called theft um why 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 is, it, why, is it, why is it why is the story of progress really not just the story of theft
1: yes i do get that uh argument quite often, um, and it, it's based on the zero-sum idea. If we suddenly got so wealthy in a part, small part of the world, Western Europe, North America, it's got to be because of the colonialism and all the awful theft that uh, took place in our early history. Uh, but it, it, the problem with that argument is that there weren't much wealth to go around to begin with. Had we redistributed everything that we had uh, across the planet just 150 years ago, each of us would live on the average income level of uh, the poorest countries in sub-Saharan Africa right now. So it couldn't be explained by theft because there weren't much wealth to begin with. And there's definitely a, a... correlation between then wealth, the industrial revolution, and colonialism, and slavery, and uh, all, all the awful things of our history, but actually it's a correlation in reverse. Every empire, every successful country on the planet has unfortunately tried to start empires, and build colonies, and enslave other peoples. It was the fact that certain countries in Western Europe got so wealthy and got access to more science and technology that made it possible for them to do that on a larger, on a more global scale than had hitherto been done before. But every place tried to do it and and did it uh, throughout history. And that's not where the wealth comes from. In fact, when we look at these histories, we can actually see that those colonies, those empires, uh, they made a few individual, individuals incredibly rich, and that's why we think of it as a, that theft creates wealth, but for the societies as a whole, it was an incredibly costly endeavor. For the British, it was costly, the kind of navies and the uh, structures that they had to build to subject peoples in, on the other side of the planet to their empire was costly to those nations, even though it enriched a few (laughs) robbers and and thieves, uh, colonial lords like that. Uh, But after the end of um, this story of uh, empire, that's when we really saw the increase in wealth uh, in Europe and in the United States and all around the world. In fact, if you really thought that the world was a zero sum game, it would be difficult to explain that GDP per capita in in Europe and the US is roughly seven times higher than it was 100 years ago. And in Asia, it's actually eight times higher. In Latin America, six times higher. In Africa, around four times higher. So if it's theft, who did we take it from?
0: Does China's rise show how a society can be prosperous today without fully embracing openness? If China can get rich without democratizing or giving up full economic control, should this give other countries reason to rethink being open themselves?
1: I think that China is uh, a strong argument for this uh, thesis of uh, how openness and progress is related because for 500 years, they stagnated as long as they were closed and uh, even worse during uh, Mao's communist uh, regime. And then, and only then, uh, in the early 1980s when Deng Xiaoping began to open the country up again, at least the economy and its Uh, science, uh, and so on. Only then did China start to grow again. And it was not. And this is an important mistake that's being done by the West, but I think also by the Chinese Communist Party. They think it was because suddenly their leaders were more enlightened than they planned, the return to the world and uh, rapid economic growth. That's not what happened. If you look at the sequence of events, it started with... Individuals, families, entrepreneurs on the local level who were just fed up with how the communist system created poverty and uh, undernourishment. And in the 1970s, they began to secretly privatize their land so that they would have incentives to and, and get away from collective farming and incentive to improve on the land and get better crops and work harder. That's what got it started. The village markets that they created, the small local shops and businesses that were in the informal sector. The the only problem was that it was so successful that it was difficult to keep it a secret. So the Communist Party found out about this success and then luckily they didn't have insane Mao Zedong as a leader anymore, Uh, but instead Deng Xiaoping who said that look, this seems to be more successful than our ways, so let's give it an official stamp of approval afterwards. And that's the start of the return of China and their their rapid success. And then when you grow by around 10% 10 a year, um, your economy, then you can always sort of carry Along on the journey, some old bad ideas, uh, state owned enterprises, and some of the planned economy as well. But that's not what creates this wealth and this success. That's actually tra- dragging it down constantly. And if the Communist Party thinks that this kind of command economy creates results in the future, I think they're bound for a um, nasty surprise in the long run. Because obviously, you can imitate some of the things that are going on. You can steal intellectual property from other places and then just get people, get farmers into the factories and create rapid growth. But after a while, you've exhausted that opportunity and you have to look at something else. The surprises, the innovations, that's where you can uh, have sustainable growth in the longer run. And that's the problem with authoritarian governments. They don't like surprises. And we see that tension right now with successful entrepreneurs and innovators who are suddenly stopped and blocked. They're not allowed to use a certain technology or proceed with their IPO. in that case as long as that's the case there's a limit to what china can do i think there are other problems as well they are very aggressive in um, some of the theft of intellectual property of investments in other places surveillance of of technology of of, um, communications technologies and so on that's where we need some uh, policy in the west as well to counter that make sure but that does not happen. But I think we do that better if we engage with them and we trade with them and we are open to multilateral trade negotiations where we set the rules so that the Chinese are tempted to agree with those rules rather than trying to build an entirely different Sinosphere on the other side of the planet because that's a battle that none of us will win in the end.
0: Is socialism? is that a is that an inherently closed political philosophy? I think it is. Uh, I mean,
1: depends on what kind of socialist you are. <laughs> you might be very open-minded when it comes to culture and uh, other ideals, but as an attempt to govern and organise a society and an economy, it's really based on this kind of designer intuition. That's, I think, part of our our heritage, our, our instinct, the idea that it's difficult for us to understand how something big and important is not created by something big and important. If we want justice, if we want wealth for everybody, it's so easy to think that we need someone to fix it. Whereas the the real story of the last 200 years is that it's only when millions of people use their local knowledge to come up with new solutions and new surprises and goods and services that that we hadn't thought of. It's only then that we can create this wealth and make sure that we we spread the wealth as well through markets and voluntary um, market negotiations. Uh, socialism is the idea that somebody's got to fix this. Somebody's got to plan this. And the problem with that table, that politburo where you meet and start to plan it, is that you lose most of the knowledge that you need to do anything because it's always local. It's only the individuals, the entrepreneurs, the businesses, the workers, uh, they are the ones who who possess it and they uh, need constantly changing price signals to immediately change what they're doing so that they can satisfy our needs better than that. At this table, you can't do that. You lose all that information, and you also lose this ability to be open to surprises. I mean, if you and i had been there at the planning table uh, and uh, trying to command and control the economy and somebody in the 1960s approached us and said that look now i've got this personal computer Uh, would you be interested in in funding this Um, so what can it do we'd probably ask and uh, they'd probably say that uh, yeah to sort library cards, perhaps, or recipes for a kitchen computer. Why would we accept that? We would probably say, no, we we need important stuff, wheat and, and steel. And, and that's actually exactly what happened in the Soviet Union. They had all their industrial spies who looked at what was going on in Silicon Valley and other places. They knew about the personal computer. They just didn't think that they would have any use for it. It would be worthless or, or just stupid. And the interesting thing to recognize is that we would probably have made the same decision. And in fact, most businesses and experts in the West thought the same thing about the personal computer as well. It was only because we did not have socialism or any kind of planned economy that those strange eccentrics in their garages were allowed to meet with other eccentrics, uh, decentralized funds of uh, financing, um, the the eccentric retailers who were willing to give it a shot, and uh, find strange markets that nobody would have thought about at this Politburo table. It could be a, a rich man who just wanted the computer as a status symbol, or it could be Gamers who wanted it for something that weren't seen as especially um, dignified by those who came up with the solution. And a couple of businesses who just wanted to experiment with it. A couple of uh, tinkers who wanted to uh, dismantle it and, and, and tinker and play with it. It was only because we had that strange, weird decentralization that we went ahead with a personal computer in the US rather than in the Soviet Union and did it for such a long time that more consumers could experiment with it and come up with new ways of using it that actually made it useful for more people and then it changed the world.
0: What would you want American politicians to know about Sweden and whether it is sort of the socialist paradise that some of them make it out to be Uh,
1: well i would give them a brief history lesson of the last 150 years (laughs) because (laughs) but it's very brief so i think they'd (laughs) listen Um, because sweden got rich got to be the fourth richest country on the planet between 1850 and 1950 and and 1950, when we were the fourth richest country on the planet, Sweden still had lower taxes than um, other European countries, lower taxes than the United States, actually, and a smaller government and a very open economy. So it was actually a generation of laissez-faire, classical liberal politicians who opened Sweden up and made us into the rich country that we had. But then followed a brief interlude when politics changed completely because swedish politicians realized we were already one of the richest countries on the planet perhaps we could start to you know tax and spend and uh, just use the uh, all this wealth for the purposes that we find particularly useful and then they started to expand the government in sweden this is the second phase of swedish history so between around 1917 and then early 1990s. The Swedish government grew, doubled in, in size as a percentage of GDP, increased all the taxes and regulated the labor market. This is what everybody remembers. This is what the Bernie Sanders and the Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez of the the world still remembers about Sweden. That for a brief this brief period of time, Sweden experimented with socialist ideals. Um, and we seem to be at least if not successful at least, we were a wealthy country. But that's just like the old joke, you know, how do you end up with a small fortune? Well, you start with a large fortune and then you waste most of it. Uh, You still have that small fortune left. And that's what we had in Sweden as well because during those 25 years, that people still remember, remember, this is the period when we lagged behind other countries. We grew more slowly, we actually didn't create a single net job in the private sector in Sweden. And lots of great entrepreneurs and businesses left Sweden. Uh, IKEA left uh, Sweden, Um, Tetra Pak left Sweden, many of our most talented people left, and it all ended in a terrible economic financial crisis in the early 1990s. then came the third phase of Swedish economic history, when a um, very insightful spectator said that the, this whole experiment with democratic socialism was unsustainable and even absurd. And that spectator was the social democratic minister of finance, Kjell Feld. So from the left to the right, there was a consensus that we had to Go back to the earlier successful model of a very open economy with a smaller government. So we deregulated the economy and opened up product markets, lowered taxes and the size of the government. And only then did Sweden begin to grow faster than other countries again and create new jobs and uh, increase the wages. Of the Swedish workforce again, so that's the the summary of of Swedish history. And the problem with that those one hundred and fifty years is that Americans seem to remember only those twenty five years of spectacular failure, and they have some sort of nostalgic uh, idea of what it was all like, and and um, it's not really what happened.
0: Last question. How do you think liberal democratic capitalist countries will react to this pandemic over the long term? Will it be a catalyst for more openness because we credit these amazing vaccines to innovation and globalization? Or will we further close ourselves off because we conclude that openness just brings in more problems like diseases? Which way do you think we're gonna go?
1: I think we'll see both things.
0: I think we'll uh, hopefully, hopefully more the- one than the other yeah, uh,
1: I hope. Uh, but I'm not certain about this, because historically, great pandemics usually result in a retreat from globalization, from openness, because people become fearful of outsiders, of foreigners uh, because diseases tend to come from somewhere, and then you blame somebody else. um and you also become a bit more afraid of global supply chains and international trade because you suddenly realize that you're dependent on them and they can fall apart during pandemics. So oftentimes, backlashes against um, openness have started with pandemics. And I certainly think that that's a strong trend and we'll hear that argument, we'll feel that sentiment for a long time. On the other hand, we have also seen a global real life test of what deglobalization means because we shut down the global economy for 6 months and it was not at all as nice as they said in in the uh, sort of online ads and in the pamphlets uh, on the contrary without trade and migration and openness we saw a global depression we will probably see Poverty increasing by around 100 million globally, uh, at least short term because of this pandemic. So I think it will be more difficult also to talk about how great it would be with more isolated national economies uh, after all of this. And in the end, what saves us is is openness. It's the fact that Chinese researchers could use technology developed on the other side of the globe to read the genome of the virus in six days and publish it online for the world to see so that German researchers could come up with a test to see who's got the disease and who doesn't in just a week, uh, which is um, just amazing. And and, uh, If you look at historical timelines uh, when it comes to dealing with uh, diseases, and then when we have that information uh, available online, the whole world—researchers, hospitals, and drug companies—can sort of poke the virus and find its uh, weak points and come up with new drugs and new vaccines in this record time. Um, just a couple of months. It's that's we've never had this rapid response to a disease in world history, and it's only because of open communication and open trade, and even things like, you know, people said that we, we don't need airplanes, we can stay at home. Well, the only reason why Pfizer was able to cooperate with uh, BioNTech in Germany to come up with a vaccine, and the first vaccine against this uh, disease, was that they had corporate jets so that they could constantly bring genetic material across the Atlantic while Europe and U.S. had shut down all the other regular air uh, traffic. So I think we will also see, even though we'll see a strengthening of protectionist, isolationist, nationalist sentiments because of the pandemic, I also think that we have stronger arguments than ever for openness because in the
0: long run that's what saves lives my guest today has been johan norberg author of one of the best books i have read in a long time open the story of human progress johan thanks for coming on the podcast thank you so
1: much for having me on